Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. Tearing sound filled the plane, a metal shriek from directly overhead, the ceiling splitting open. The great spine of overhead luggage compartments and lights and little air blowers lifted away, shattering into a million pieces of plastic as it rose. The oxygen mast was yanked free from her hand and went spinning into the sudden wind. No way, she breathed. Through the huge hole, a sudden white sky shone down on Anna, hard sunlight and snow-filled air. The wind was freezing, blustering at hundreds of miles an hour, forcing her smoke-stung eyes into a squint. Her ears popped so hard, her whole head felt like it was burning. The gale in the cabin reached across the seat-back pockets to seize magazines and safety cards and boarding passes, churning them into a blizzard of paper that slapped at her face and hands. But a moment later, all that debris had fluttered up and away. Nothing was left but the snapped wires and shreds of plastic at the edges of the torn roof trembling madly in the wind. That was author Scott Westerfeld, reading from a harrowing scene at the beginning of Horizon, the first book in a new adventure series for 9- to 12-year-olds. You may know Scott as the author of The Ugly Series, Afterworlds, and several other books for young readers. What sets Horizon apart is that in addition to the seven books in the series— There is also a video game that kids can play. Think Spirit Animals and the 39 Clues. Kids can read the books, play the free game, or do both simultaneously. Also joining us in the studio to talk about this unique approach are Nick Eliopoulos, the editor for the Horizon series, and Gavin Brown, a digital producer at Scholastic who led the design of the Horizon game. Scott, to start things off, could you set the stage for our listeners? Tell us all about Horizon. So Horizon starts with this bunch of cool, nerdy kids who've just won the U.S. Robotic Soccer Championship. Basically, they built these robots as part of a school project, and um, they're soccer-playing robots, and they, and they wanted this, the, the championship of the United States unexpectedly, and they're all being flown to Tokyo to participate in the world championships. Um, Unfortunately, along the way, their plane is seized by a mysterious force and broken apart. And when it comes crashing down, it's, there's no adults left somehow. And they all unexpectedly find themselves in a jungle, whereas they should be in the Arctic. And this jungle is uh, full of weird, dangerous creatures trying to kill them. And they have to use their mad engineering skills and teamwork to survive and try to get home can't tell if this makes STEM education more appealing or terrifying. (laughs) I'm on the fence about that. All right. That's great. So we also have with us in the studio Gavin. And Gavin, what is your role in the Horizon series? So my my job is to make the game that accompanies these books. So we get this amazing book series, and then we get the opportunity to create a game that reflects that world and lets players really dive into that world. And Nick, what about you? I am the editor of this series, uh, which is a lot of fun. It means basically that I get to be the the lore keeper and the continuity cop and make sure that everything makes sense across the books and across the game and everything else that we're creating. Got it. And how? what was the genesis for this series? 
the genesis for this series is really that Scott had an amazing idea. Um, and I think he had an eye on Scholastic's multi-platform program for some while. Uh, we were certainly all fans of his. Um, I've been going to his readings and signings since, I think, 2004. So this was a, an opportunity for, for us to work together. Um, and essentially, what worked so well with this idea is that for the multi-platform program, we're really looking for big stories that uh, that are almost too big just for a series of books. It has to be something that's big enough to spread out into a game and across other media. And Horizon definitely fits the bill. And there's a reason for that, to have um, content across platforms. There are a lot of great reasons okay. for it, both within the context of the stories themselves and also within, you know, what, what our sort of mission statement is for the multi-platform program. I would love for you to elaborate on that. Sure. Yeah. Well, uh, at its heart, you know, the multi-platform program really is is about the books and about the reading experience uh, that that we're building across a series. But because we're able to branch out and tell that story across other media as well, it makes for an even more immersive reading experience than than you typically get with a book series. And I would think that kids who may be engaged in gaming and not so much in books could get involved in the gaming and then That's that would spark an interest. absolutely true. We see it as an opportunity to, to really reach kids where they're spending their time already, whether they're readers or not readers. You know, and we hear a lot about how much media is competing for kids' attention and how they have, they have sort of more media to consume than ever before. Um, but it's, it's absolutely a, a tenet of this program that we don't think that kids are readers or gamers, that they're actually both and that they're spending their time doing both. And this is, this is a way to engage with those kids. And I feel like that's something that really good readers do anyway. When, you know, when people who are truly immersed in a book series, they, they play act it or they, or they role play it or they write fan fiction or they, or they have dreams where they're in the adventure themselves. Right. And I think that's just part of the reading experience that really good readers do is they, you know, is they extend the the universe of that story and of that book into something more immersive and to, to part of their everyday life and into their play. Exactly. And also, this is a multimedia world, and yet still at the heart of it, what is most compelling is a great story, we all know. And you had this great story. So tell us how this came to be in your imagination and what the beginnings of it were. Well, I wanted to do something with uh, survival as a theme because I knew I wanted something that would turn into a, a cool game. And obviously, when you're, when you're in a video game, stuff is always trying to kill you. That's one of the, <laughs> one of the characteristics of many video games. Not every, video, not every game, but many of them. You know, there's, there's things shooting at you and, you know, and jumping on you. And, and that's the way survival is. That's, what, you know, that's sort of like being on a desert island, being in a jungle, being somewhere that's that's uh, that, you're, that where you're out of your usual comfort zone and your your usual 21st century conveniences, and everything is hard. And um, and I read Hatchet, um, which is a, yes. a fantastic book, and and it was it's amazing how well it stood up. And I said, there's so much stuff in here. Um, and and I think when I was a kid, and I read Hatchet, I remember thinking, this is so great. I just wish it was like on another planet. Or, or someplace more strange and more weird and more fantastical. So I thought like a fantastical version of Hatchet with more kids, you know, uh-huh. with a team of different, uh, of different personalities and different abilities and different skills working together to solve this problem, which is not only a problem of survival, but a problem of where are we and why are we here? Right, and those skills are both complementary and they sometimes clash with, with, with each other. 
Yeah, I mean, they're sort of like a superhero team in a way, and that you know you have. You know, in, in a classic sort of superhero team, you might have a smart guy and a, and a, and a fast guy and a strong guy and a, or, you know, and a, and a woman who does, you know, who's bendy or invisible or, right. you know, there's all these kinds of uh, different powers that have stealth or strength. And, and I've always liked those narratives of people who bring, you know, who are stronger together than they are individually. Mm-hmm. And what were some of your favorite parts of in the developing of the story? What were some of the, your favorite scenes that you created? Um, I did really enjoy the the plane crash scenes. For some reason, I do fly a lot. So, and I think all writers, when they when they are in situations, they think, "How is this a story? Like, what would make this the best possible story?" And of course, plane crash. You know, when you're on a plane, plane disaster makes it. a great story, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Things going wrong is how how stories start anyway, and that's how this one starts. So that's one of my uh, that's that's one I've thought a lot about. So I feel like I got some of the details uh, represent Ugh. years and years of deep contemplation. Yes, <laughs> it was a little too accurate for me. I was <laughs> I was very anxious when I was reading. And Gavin, why don't you jump in here and talk sure. a little bit about your role in the multi-platform part? Yeah. So um, this we we met with Scott very early on when he was still in the process of writing this first book and outlining it. And um, I actually had had. Several years prior to that, read his Leviathan series and thought that this was, it was such an incredible world that he created, and so like similar to ours, but twisted in a really cool way. And so then to have him come in and show us this completely new alien world that we had to explore and figure out was was awesome. And and so then we've been through the whole process, like following along, trying to trying to bring the world that you see in books and the world that is in the reader's imagination into life in a way that you can actually get in and lose yourself in for hours at a time. So for those of us for whom this multi-platform world is alien, could you really describe the nuts and bolts of what you do, how you put something like this together? Yeah, sure. So the the first thing that we do, um, because we always start with the book, and the book is the core of the program, and an amazing book is is what makes this whole thing work. Um, So the first thing we do is we figure out what sort of game matches up with the feel of this book. So for other series, so for a series like the 39 Clues, mm-hmm. we had to, it's, it's very much a mystery series. So we created a game that's all about solving puzzles and all about, um, all about going around the world and figuring out historical things. And it's very sort of puzzle-based. For um, Spirit Animals, which was another recent one we did, it's all about kids running around with their swords fighting the bad guys. So we created a game where you can actually go into the mountains and beat the bad guys. So for Horizon... Um, we had to figure out what what is the type of gameplay that lends itself to this world that we have. And we decided that um, because it's about exploring, we need you to be able to move around in a really interesting way. So we started with this, uh, what's called a, a platform game. Um, and Because the jungle, jungles are these multi-level, the jungle is the first world we go to. Jungles are these multi-level uh, places where there are threats coming at you from all directions. We wanted to let kids do something where they can run and jump and dodge their way through a, a really incredibly dangerous jungle. So I'll just go back to you, Scott, for a moment. The mastery of, you know, conquering your fears or conquering dangers looms large here. And we know that this helps children when they do this in an imaginary way. It helps them cope with real life dangers. How do you see that playing out in your work? Well, I do think that um, you know, survival stories are like one of the original kinds of kid stories. You know, what happens if you're separated from the rest of your tribe and you have to make it on your own? In fact, that used to be a, a big part of growing up is you'd kick mm-hmm. a kid out into the wilderness and say, walk around a bit on your own because that's because you had to prove, you know, to be a fully-fledged adult, you had to prove that you could take care of yourself. 
And, and I think that's still a very strong, you know, a, a fantasy of, uh, of being a kid because eventually you will have to take care of yourself out in that world without your parents there and without anyone necessarily there to help you. And, um, and I think that's something we start preparing for from like our first day of school or our first day of camp. Anytime you, you, know, you leave your house, suddenly you're out there in the wilderness, <laughs> in the wild. <laughs> and, I, and I think that, um, you know, having those kinds of, you know, having those kinds of experiences in a nice safe place, which is what a book is, um, prepares you for the ideas of, of, you know, of problem solving and, and being independent and, and, of course, finding allies and working together with other people to solve those problems. Absolutely. Also, what drew you to the robotics phenomenon, which I know is big with many kids? I saw this documentary about a bunch of high school kids in, I think, Arizona, who, um, who worked together on a submarine robotic challenge. And they made this submarine. And they, their, their teacher wanted to enter it into the high school championship level, but all the places had been filled. But there was one place in the college level. So they were going up against like MIT and Harvard and you know and Princeton and these teams had had legacies of having entered this competition for years in advance and some of the people in the teams had been there like you know 3 years before and and these these high school kids won they built this crazy robot and it had um you know and it had some of the most ridiculous kind you know it was leaky but they solved the leaking problem in these well in this way I'm not even going to I'll let you watch the documentary, but okay. it's a really great um, it's a really great example of how, you know, of, of a bunch of uh, kids who you don't expect to win just conquering everybody and 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 doing so, you know, and surprising everybody as well. Uh huh. That's great. So, Nick, I'm thinking about the continuity since yes. this is such a complex story. Right. Tell me what the challenges were that you faced in editing. Well, many of my challenges are yet to come. So <laughs> fortunately, Scott, Scott set me up with a lot of great material. He, he, he not only pitched this as a book series, he actually created this extensive lore document. Um, and I, I have always been the kind of reader and the kind of fanboy who loves, you know, that if I'm reading a fantasy novel, I really hope there's an appendix in the back so that I can learn more about this world. And and so, to an extent, that's what that's what Scott provided. Uh, he provided all of this ancillary material, world building material, that in other books, as an editor, it might actually be my job to cut that stuff to say this isn't necessarily germane to the story. We have to keep you know within a particular word count. Um, and instead, for this series, that got to be my my springboard to really open the open the story up. So we used that document, Gavin and I and his team, in uh, in populating the video game with lots of creatures. Uh, Scott in book one uh, introduces us to maybe like four or five or six different beasts. There's only so many monsters you can fit into a book, but we found in the game we actually needed a lot more. And fortunately, knowing what we knew about this world that Scott has created allowed us to extrapolate from there and create some new threats uh, that are going to be in the game, some of which are actually now inspiring writers of later books. Um, That's the other aspect to my job is that while Scott has plotted the entire series, we're actually going to have different authors coming in for books two through seven of the series. Oh, neat. Yes, and a, a new book every six months or so. So we actually have multiple authors working on their stories simultaneously. So a big part of my job is making sure that, you know, whoever is writing book six knows exactly what's going on in book five 
even if book five hasn't been written yet. Oh my gosh, the pressure on those authors. It, <laughs> it is. Must be it is. Intense. I do everything I can to mitigate it. But, <laughs> but honestly, it's just, it's also a lot of fun. And something that I really love about this structure is that we know we've got an awesome story. We know what's going to happen in terms of the big picture plot. We know a lot of the character beats that we need to hit. But no matter how extensively you plot a book in advance or a series of books in advance, there's inevitably a lot of room to play. And so every author that we bring on is going to be able to explore the aspects of the story or the world that they find most interesting, focus on the characters they like the most or like the least. Uh-huh. Uh, there, there's actually a lot of room for creativity and for every author to bring their own voice and strengths to the to the series. In terms of teamwork and skills and personality, I found that fascinating, Scott, the way you did set up your characters. Could you choose just one and describe for our listeners a little bit about that character and his or her skills and weaknesses and personality? Um, I really like Molly. She's the leader of the group. And one of the things that's interesting for her, uh, that's interesting about her, is that, you know, they're all engineers, mostly. And uh, they do meet some other kids, but they're mostly engineers. And, And the way that she sees engineering is not just here's a problem to be solved and here's a here's a robot that has to be fixed and how do we make it jump higher or move faster. She's also thinking about it as a social problem, as, you know, the way she does engineering is to engage everyone and to have a conversation. So she sees problem solving as a, um, you know, as a, as a social activity. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that, like, when you're young, for a lot of people, that's, that's kind of key. Like, you want it, like, everything is more interesting when it's social, when, you know, it's, it's more interesting to read a book when you have three friends who are reading that book. Because then it's not just you read it and go, oh, that's interesting. But you get to talk about it and you get to role play it and you get to like think, you know, argue about which character is better or argue about what they should have done or what your favorite scene is or who your favorite character is. So there's once you make something social and once you bring something out into or other people are, you know, engaging in it, suddenly you get all these different levels of understanding. And I think that's what's cool about Molly is she applies that to something like building a robot or building a fire or getting food. She makes everything into a group activity. That's fascinating. It makes me think of an astronaut I interviewed recently about the astronauts who are being selected for NASA these days. And they're very different from the old days when it was the right stuff and you just had a a pure mathematician or a guy who could fix an engine. And now with you know, plans to go to Mars and to go to far-flung places for long periods of time, the social skills are every bit as important, if not more so. So the fact that you have that all in Mali is is quite interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's really our superpower as human beings is we're real good at collaboration. Like, we can't fly, but when you have thousands of human beings designing airplanes, building airplanes, doing air traffic control, you know, checking baggage— then you can fly, and flying becomes easy. Usually. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Well, (laughs) Used to be. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there are a few glitches occasionally. But yes, even the fact that, tell our listeners about even the wires in the airplane that Molly was challenging Javi with. (laughs) I love that. There's just a weird little factoid that, uh, like, when, when one of the ways to get into these characters' heads, I mean, one of the things I like about writing novels is that they're kind of machines for being, becoming another human being. And to see how they see the world and how they understand the world. So when when I, I wanted to show what it was like to be these sort of smart, nerdy engineering kids. And when you're first in, in Javi's head, Molly starts challenging him and asking him trivia questions like, how many miles of wire do you think are in this 
airplane. And he sort of thinks about his seat and then the overhead compartments and, and all these little air blowies all need their own little wire and these little speakers need their own little wire and there's a video screen in the seat in front of him. So he has to do all this math and make all these assumptions and figure out how many miles of wire there are. And he doesn't get it right, but at least you, you know, the idea that you can think your way through these kind of problems is what becomes essential later on when it's a matter of survival. Of course. And the fact that human beings had the ingenuity to wire an airplane and get it off the ground is endlessly. Yeah. <laughs> and no one human being could do that. You couldn't, right. no one, no one could make a 737 or a seven, you uh-huh. know, it, it would be impossible. But with many thousands of people, each looking at a different part, it all comes together. So Gavin, do you have thousands of people on your team working on the video games? Or? If only. <laughs> well, that sounds like a nightmare, actually. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we, we do have a fairly large team and it's spread, spread out across the globe. So we have a core team here in New York who, who, who works on it, but we also work with um, programmers in Australia and Poland and uh, sound designers on the West Coast. And so it's, a, it's like it's a, uh, you know, a global adventure. These are also global efforts to create them. Gosh, and what are some of the different roles? You said you had programmers and you had sound engineers. Yeah, so when you when you put together a game, there are all these many many different parts that need to fit together. So you have to you have to have um, first off, you have to have the the game designers who are figuring out what you're doing and how you're doing it, um, and how the story is going to fit together. And you need programmers who are going to develop the actual the the engine of the game, and then all the tiny little details that make it feel like the the world that you're trying to create. We have a team of artists. You have to have artists who do work in 3D, artists who work in 2D. Um, we have sound designers who are creating the music and creating the sound, which for this is a very, very important part. It's something we haven't talked about, but there are all these little sonic pieces that are happening in the books, and we wanted to pull that experience into this world. So there's in the game, there's actually a, a thing called a sequencer where you, you play in a piece of music and you get out a blueprint for a gadget. This is a little bit like making an animated movie, then. In a way. Yeah, it's. I mean, they're 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 very similar and converging more and more as animated uh-huh. movies become things that are programmed and have real physics physics in them. Right. It's not just somebody drawing anymore. Um, but it's, it's yeah. also like an animated movie where the kid gets to step in and and uh-huh. craft the character right. that point. they want to see running across the screen and and decide what right. outfit they want to wear and what gear they want to craft and that sort of thing. So that's I think that's what makes it so amazing is that. We've got this rich visual world that they're building, but every kid's experience gets to be totally customized. So true. Now, how did, Gavin, how did you get started in this world, this realm? What did you like to read as a kid or did you play video games as a kid? Yeah, I was, I was always, I was always a huge gamer. I always loved books, especially science fiction books. Mm -hmm. I was that kid who would go and just work his way through the science fiction section at the, at the local library. And um, so, and I, this is, Designing games was also something that I did. I was the, I was also that kid who would force his friends to sit around for an afternoon cutting out pieces of cardboard to make this board game that I invented that turned out to not really work at all. <laughs> um, and uh, try to design video games and, and program them. I was never all that good at it as a kid. But um, then to have the opportunity to start working at Scholastic about eight years ago, working on 39 Clues, and first helping out with the card game and the card, collectible cards there, and then moving to the web games and... Um, Infinity Ring and Spirit Animals and now Horizon has been, it's it, it's one of these things that most of your days you just come in and you do your job and you try to get it. And every once in a while you sort of reflect and realize, wow, I get to come in and work on these crazy fantasy and science fiction worlds making video games. And I just feel incredibly lucky to have that opportunity. 
That's terrific. And Nick, what about you? Tell us a little bit about your childhood interests. I always love sure. that. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was, I mean, I am, I'm a big comic book guy, and specifically <laughs> superhero <laughs> comics. Yeah. So this, I mean, this is just, this project in particular, but this, this job in general is just a perfect convergence of all of my interests. I was, you know, I was the comic reader who would, who would just keep track of these complex continuities and take it really seriously. So, you know, I'd, I'd write Marvel a letter and say, hey, you know, last time we saw Electro, he was really mad at Dr. Octopus. So why would he be working for Dr. Octopus in this issue? Um, oh my gosh, the continuity. Yeah, editor. so it really, I mean, it really, <laughs> I, I have the perfect training uh, imaginable for this job. And 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 yeah, just um, always been a reader and always a gamer and never saw those things as contradictory, never felt like I had to choose between one or the other. So so I really believe in what we're doing here and, and enjoy it. And could you just tell talk a little more about how this does empower children, this immersive experience, as it were, and the ability to control different parts of the game? Or, yeah, know, absolutely. Trajectory? Well, I think a lot of it goes back to some of the points that Scott has made about, about how the books that we love become these spaces that we want to play in. And, and whether that's just running around the playground, you know, playing make-believe, I think it's it's all the more impactful to be able to sort of inhabit the visual space that this book has created. Um, we also are really careful, and something Gavin's team does really well, is that they they make the games themselves a social space, and the games are supported with a robust message board forum site, which is actually a safe space for fans of the series from across the world to interact. Um, and we will actually generate a lot of content to to get them on the message boards, get them thinking about their own stories. You know, we do everything from the, what sort of, which is your favorite character sort of questions to story starters where we we uh, suggest that they, they write their own fiction. Um, and we've had a lot of success with that in the past. I think particularly spirit animals. I've actually done school visits where I hear from the kids who who have their lunchtime recess spirit animals group where... They are running around on the playground, and they all have their imaginary spirit animal, and then they go home, and they get on the forums, and they play the game as well, and have read all the books. Now, Scott, Nick said earlier, you're an extremely accomplished, respected writer. Could you tell us about your beginnings in writing fiction? I'm one of those people who, if I'm, you know, if I'm traveling, touring, and I randomly find myself in a hotel and turn on the TV to go to sleep and and I don't know what's going to pop up because I don't know what the channels mean in this particular city. And there's just two people talking. I, you know, one of the first things I say to myself is, okay, could one of them be a vampire? Could one of them be an alien? <laughs> of course. <laughs> is, you know, and as, as the chances that, that, uh, that, uh, that, that, there, that there's magic involved or, you know, or aliens or something like that, as that go down, the chances of my turning to a different channel go up. I'm, I'm basically somebody who doesn't want to see a show about two lawyers talking to each other. So I, uh, so I, and I think that, you know, that goes back to, like, as Gavin said, I was somebody who, you know, when I went to a bookstore, the science fiction section, fantasy section, had the best covers and the best stories. And the books had maps in the beginning, which made them better mm-hmm. than all other books. And, and that to me is, you know, that's my fundamental story space is what if the world was different than it is? What if the rules of the physics, or the you know, or the, or the you know, what if aliens invaded tomorrow? Those what if questions are what makes me want to tell stories and read stories. What did you major in in college? Philosophy. <laughs> so, <laughs> so did I actually. Really? Are you serious? <laughs> did you really? Wow. Well, who was your favorite philosopher? Uh, a guy called Ludwig Wittgenstein. 
who oh, was very much uh, he, his writing. He writes a lot about language, and he's also a really I don't know if people. I guess this has been said a few times about him, um, but he's he's a tremendously good writer. He's one of the one of the best sort of prose stylists of uh, of philosophers, which is not a high bar, but um, <laughs> <True>. <laughs> but he's but he's a really good writer, and he, he's talking about language and thinking about the way words work and why why does a word work? You know, why does that trigger all these? When you say chair, why does it trigger all these associations and how these things fit together? And that's just you know, and the philosophy of language is just something that's been interesting to me since I found out that there were people who did that sort of thing. I love that. Nick, I think you can attest as an English major, you would seize on any philosopher who could write well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and in fact, I, I focused on literary theory, so it was actually a lot of very dense philo- oh, philosophizing oh. about writing. Okay. And then, Gavin, what about you? Who, do you who's, who are your philosophers? So my favorite philosophy paper is one called What Is It Like to Be a Bat by Thomas Nagel, which actually ties into what we're talking about with Horizon a little bit because it's about what the experience of being a bat who's using echolocation would be and how alien that would be and how inaccessible that is to our our ability to understand it through science. And that's the, that's the kind of odd thing that you'll be thinking in this in this alien valley with all these creatures that you don't understand and that you 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 are trying to figure out what what they're doing and why they're doing it and ultimately we'll see whether the kids can actually get there and figure it out. And that's one of my favorite things about writing. And that's another reason I like to write science fiction is because you can write the story and try to at least try to convince another human being who's like you, a human being, that they know what it was like to use echolocation <laughs> or to be in a world where the physics changed or to, you know, or to have a superpower. Those are all like incredibly interesting writing challenges to make it feel like, um, you know, to fit, make it feel like you can fly. Yeah. And Scott, you're about, you have handed over now the next books here, book two, three, four, five, six, and seven, to different authors. How does that feel? Is it is it scary for you? Exciting? Stressful? All of the above? Oh, I think it's really just exciting. Yeah. I mean, to me, and it's kind of funny because it's like it's like we're in this juggling act and I've thrown all of these bowling pins in the hmm. air, but I don't have to catch them. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I, think I, to, I think that's the easy part is throwing them in the air. Somebody else has to like catch them and make them all make sense and 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 sort of stick the finish. Um so so like you know I have I have outlined a lot of this. I, you know the 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 document that uh, Nick talked about earlier is is pretty complicated and pretty long and 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 says a lot of stuff, but of course there's no way to say everything without writing mm-hmm. the books myself. And I'm sure it'll be interesting to see uh how the how everyone how everyone looks at this problem and you know and the and the problem of catching these bowling pins in a different way. Yeah, I would think. So what content at the end when you have seven books, you're going to have seven games and I mean, tell me about all the ancillary material that will be available to kids by the end of this project. Sure, well, we can start with the game. Uh there will be because there are seven books and each of the books goes through a different environment, a different section of this of this valley. Uh, we're going to have seven different environments that you can play in the game. So the first one is the jungle, um, and that's which is, and then immediately after the jungle, we're going into the desert, which is going to be a totally different. It's it's a different, very different style of gameplay because in the jungle you've got all these different levels, whereas on the desert it's flat. So we're gonna, it's not just going to be a le- a, some new art. It's going to be new creatures that you can interact with and a new style of gameplay you have to adapt with, to. And especially there's going to be new gadgets that you can use 
one of the things that makes this game different from other, you know, there are plenty of games out there that have platforms and running and jumping. Uh, one of the things we're doing to make this different is the the twisted physics that is in the books. We're bringing to life in the game by having there be gadgets that actually alter the rules of physics that you're, that dictate how your character moves, how the other character moves. So gravity, time, you can, magnetism, where we're creating a, a this, this, this exotic and unfamiliar physics that you actually, the, as the player, can alter. I should say, just because it hasn't come up, that the books, the book series really does stand on its own. Um, we are doing everything we can to encourage kids to engage with the larger world and go back and forth between the books and the games. But the books do stand on their own. One of the ways that we are hoping to drive kids back and forth, though, is that each book will include a, a musical sequence code that they can then go on to the, onto the game. And so, so the game is totally free to play. Anyone can play it. Uh, but if you have the book in front of you, you can actually log on and unlock exclusive gear using this exclusive musical sequence. So we're, we're always looking at ways like that to sort of drive engagement and to make sure that kids are incentivized to have the books and follow, follow the story through the books, um, even if they initially come to the books through the game. And similarly, the game, we try to really push the experience of the book and how it all fits together. And over the course of the game, there are going to be um, audio recordings you can find that have been left behind by previous explorers of the valley. And those will help to both enlarge the, the whole world that we're dealing with, but also tie into things that you may have heard about in the books. So Horizon, the first book, is out now, which is wonderful, and we have the game. When will the second book be coming out, Nick? The second book publishes in fall of this year, and it's written by Jennifer Nielsen, who is another one of my favorite authors. So it, it's it's extremely exciting to see what she's bringing to the series. And, and I always think of Jen as someone who's really great at, at making you invested in a character from the beginning. I still get chills when I remember reading the first chapter of The False Prince, uh, so look for that in September of 2017. How do you play the game? So you can, um, for all the information about the series and the game, you can go to scholastic.com slash horizon. The game is available on your iOS device. That's an iPhone or an iPad on your Android device and on your web browser. So you can just go to the app store on your, on your iPhone or the market on your Android and download the app. Or you can go to our website, scholastic.com slash horizon, and play the game right there. Great thanks again to Scott Westerfeld, Nick Eliopoulos, and Gavin Brown for joining us today. And thank you for joining us and for sharing in our mission at Scholastic, where we believe that the right book in a child's hands can open a world of possibilities.